Okay, mate, 40 here. So I notice a lot of people in chat say they don't trust America. They don't trust the U.S. government. They don't trust the Federal Reserve. They don't trust the banking system. They feel like all the elites are out to screw them over. So my question is to you is where do you put your money? Because probably where you choose to put your money, that indicates who you trust. So if you give your or your money to your brother to look after for you, that means you have more trust in your brother than anyone else. If you buy U.S. Treasuries, okay, that's what I do. I put my faith, my trust in U.S. Treasury bonds. I think it's the I bond that gives a return greater than inflation. I, I trust U.S. government treasuries. Now, if you don't trust the U.S. government, if you think the whole Western banking financial system is out to screw you over, then it would make sense that over the past uh, few years, you would invest all your spare assets in cyber currency. So how's that working out? Like buying into Bitcoin, how's that working out? If you don't trust the banks, you don't trust our system, it makes sense that you'd buy cyber currencies. But wherever you put your money, right, that shows who you finally trust. Right, so it's one thing to say, oh, I don't trust America, I don't trust the, the banks, I don't trust uh, Joe Biden, All right? But where do you put your money? All right? do you invest it in Saudi Arabia? Do you invest in real estate? If you invest in American real estate, that means you trust the American system. And the American and welcome to Tucker Carlson Tonight, Here's one rule we try to follow. You probably should distrust anybody who draws quick and dirty partisan conclusions in the hours after a national disaster. You see this happen all the time. People on TV, for example, telling you the gun lobby is somehow responsible for the latest school shooting, even as the ambulances are still arriving. Or how climate change caused those tornadoes at a trailer park in Indiana. Bill Nye, the science guy, blaming your pickup truck for extreme weather. These are not people who are speaking in good faith. They're not trying to solve problems. They're not even interested in what actually happened. They're lying. They're unscrupulous. And they will say anything if they think it'll make them more powerful. So best to ignore them. On the other hand, and this is also true, over time, it is possible to draw legitimate connections between decisions that politicians make so and the true. catastrophes that follow. The rise in gas prices, for example. The price of gas in America now qualifies as a catastrophe. That's true. No matter how you feel about carbon emissions, you still probably assumed you'd be able to afford to drive to work every day or take a vacation with your kids this summer or buy dinner in a restaurant once in a while. But now you can't. And gas prices are the reason you can't. Nothing makes the country poorer faster than rising energy prices. So how did this happen? Well, we're going to let you decide. We're going to play you a tape from a campaign event during the last Democratic presidential primaries in New Hampshire. This video was shot in 2019 at a moment when not a single person in the country really believed that Joe Biden had any chance to win his party's nomination. So because they gave him no chance, not a lot of people were paying attention when Biden was asked whether he would continue to take donations from the oil and gas industry. Here's how he responded. Kiddo, I want you to just take a look, OK? You don't have to agree, but I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee you 
I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuel and I am not going to cooperate with them. Okay? We're going to end fossil fuel. End fossil fuel? The basis of the entire American economy? How are we going to do that? And why? Biden didn't explain. And again, because no one believed he was actually going to win, no one thought to ask. The assumption then was that Biden was only running for president because he was old and sad and didn't know what else to do with his retirement. It's not like he was going to get anywhere. So Biden kept saying this, not noticed by many. As president, he pledged, quote, no more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Well, then something unexpected happened. Bernie Sanders so terrified the Democratic Party's top donors that they gave the nomination to senile old Joe Biden. And then Biden became president. And then as president, he immediately started doing exactly what he had promised he would do. Biden stopped issuing new permits for oil and gas leases. He canceled federal drilling permits and pipelines. Then just a month ago, the administration canceled three oil and gas leases in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico, and then eliminated more than a million acres of potential drilling sites. Then to cap it off, you may have noticed, Joe Biden imposed an oil embargo on Russia, which is one of the world's biggest energy producers because democracy or something. So what happened next? Well, gas went to over $5 a gallon. Inflation exploded. India and China got a whole lot more cheap Russian oil to keep their economies humming. And then the ruble got even stronger than it was before the war in Ukraine. So everyone got rich except us. We got poorer. Those are the facts. Now, what would you conclude from those facts? Well, you might start to think that Joe Biden had something to do with rising gas prices because when you restrict the supply of something, when you have less of something, it costs more, like oil, for example. Now, this is a principle known to elite professional economists as supply and demand. Less drilling gives you more expensive gasoline. You might conclude that, but you would be wrong. In fact, if you believe that, you're an idiot. You probably still think Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 presidential election. You're naive. You're credulous. You're a sap. The truth is much more obvious. Gas prices are high right now because Vladimir Putin made them high. How did Putin do that? Simple. From his lair in a torture chamber deep beneath Lubyanka prison in Moscow, surrounded by empty vodka bottles and the severed heads of his enemies, Putin signed an executive order raising the price of unleaded gasoline and diesel fuel in the United States. And also while he was at it, of cauliflower and wheat thins and dimensional lumber and plywood and plumbing parts and fish tacos. As well as a whole bunch of other things you buy, in fact, of everything you buy. Vladimir Putin single-handedly caused inflation and high gas prices. He did this on purpose just as he got his orange accomplice elected president of the United States five years ago. Putin did that. Why did he do it? As if you even needed to ask. Putin did this because he hates our freedoms. That's why. The freedoms that Joe Biden gave us that Putin wants to take away. As Joe Biden himself wrote in a letter today, scolding the oil companies for not selling more oil, <laughs> quote, we're living with the economic challenges that Vladimir Putin's actions have created for American families. See, it's that darn Putin again. But Biden's got a plan to fight the Slavic gas crunch. He's going to impose a new tax on energy. That way, gas prices will drop because when you make something cost more, actually it's cheaper to buy. Does that make sense? Joe Kernan may be the one sane person left on CNBC. Here was his assessment of this. Here's the final two lines of the letter. Vladimir Putin's price hike, which price hike are both capitalized. I'm not sure why, but Vladimir Putin's price hike, all caps, are driving up costs for consumers. 
I appreciate your immediate attention to this issue and your efforts to mitigate the economic challenges that Vladimir Putin's actions have created for American families. So Putin's mentioned five times, I think. There's your last paragraph. Um, Brian, we'll see how the oil and gas companies respond. This is pure demagoguery. It's, it's not going to help the issue. It's, it's getting your eye off the real problems and the real problems. And this is uh, just on break telling Becky, I lived through the Carter years. Every day I, I get a stronger sense of deja vu. Oh, Jimmy Carter, another great Democratic leader undone by the Russians, in his case, Leonid Brezhnev. In 1980, it turns out Jimmy Carter did roughly what Joe Biden wants to do. He imposed an excise tax of 70 percent on the value of oil sales in excess of $12.80. So what happened next? Well, we know because it was studied. The Congressional Research Service found that that tax had the effect of crippling domestic oil production by between 1.2 and 8 percent. Our reliance on foreign oil, meanwhile, went up by as much as 13 percent. And that doesn't really make sense. If the point of the tax was only to prevent, quote, price gouging, how did this happen? Well, in 2018, a paper in the journal Economic Policy answered that question. The journal found that increased taxes on oil have the effect of discouraging oil producers to take risk on oil production. And those risks are actually high. At the Tax Foundation, they found that, quote, energy was the most volatile sector of the stock market in the 2010s. And when the pandemic arrived, more than 100 oil companies went bankrupt and the major producers significantly rolled back their operations. So those are risky investments, whether you agree with them or not. If you make them even riskier, production will decline even more. That seems like the obvious conclusion. And when production declines, prices get higher. And it seems to be, according to some people, what's happening. The CEO of Chevron, Mike Worth, whatever you think of Chevron, knows a lot about oil, but just predicted that we're quoting, I personally don't believe there will be a new petroleum refinery ever built in this country again. What we've seen over the last two years are shutdowns. We've seen refineries closed. We've seen units come down. We've seen refineries being repurposed to become bio-refineries. We can burn food in our cars. And we live in a world where the policy, the state of policy of the U.S. government, is to reduce demand for the products that refiners produce. So when you don't allow people to produce something, what they once produced becomes scarce and therefore highly expensive. And if you depend on it every day, you're screwed. That's what they're saying. But of course, that sounds like Russian disinformation. It sounds like something Putin himself wrote. And indeed, that's what it is. What's really happening, according to our energy secretary, is this. Our oil and gas producers have a responsibility. We're on a war footing. The, the price of oil, the price of gas is precipitating the high cost, the high percentage of inflation around the world. And so he's asking upon our domestic and international producers to produce more. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused the price of gas in the United States to go up $1.70 a gallon since the invasion occurred. Ultimately, the the, the solution to make us energy secure, to make the Baltic states energy secure, to make the ent right. entire world energy secure, is to move to clean energy. You, no country has ever been held hostage to access to the sun or to access to the wind. Oh, now you may be asking yourself, why would you put someone like that who's never had a real job and achieved precisely nothing in her life and actually doesn't know anything about anything? Why would you put her in a key position like Secretary of Energy, because she knows the science. As she just told you, sun and wind are the most reliable forms of energy. It's not like clouds could block the sun. 
or the wind might stop blowing. That's insane. And don't think about nuclear power ramping up domestic energy production. That's what Putin wants you to do. So to keep our democracy safe, we can't do anything that helps Putin. We should tell you that not all White House officials agree with this, logical as it seems. According to Bloomberg, quote, Biden officials privately expressed concern that rather than dissuade the Kremlin as intended, sanctions have instead exacerbated inflation, worsened food insecurity, and pushed ordinary Russians punished more than Putin or his allies. Now, you might be tempted to agree with those Biden officials if you look at this chart showing that the value of the ruble, as we told you, as measured against the dollar, is skyrocketing. So we've helped Putin with the sanctions. Biden promised us we would, quote, reduce the ruble to rubble cutting Russia off from the rest of the world. Maybe that's why food is so expensive. Sorry. <laughs> we were repeating Russian disinformation again. Jen Psaki said it straight on that months ago. Turns out food's expensive because the meat conglomerates are greedy. They're greedy. They're so greedy they don't want to sell their products. Watch this. I think that the president thinks the way people across the country, American families, uh, digest inflation is by price increases. And if you look at industry to industry, it's a little different. So, for example, the president, the secretary of agriculture have both spoken to what we've seen as the greed of meat conglomerates. That is an area when where people go to the grocery store and they're trying to buy a pound of meat, two pounds of meat, 10 pounds of meat. Um, it is the prices are higher. That is, in his view uh, and the view of our secretary of agriculture, because because of, you could call it corporate greed short. Yeah, so let's get someone who couldn't find a spark plug on a lawnmower to explain economics to us. Oh, it's greed. Again, not a defense of corporate America, which is indeed greedy and dark. That's for sure. But the idea that prices are going up simply because of greed may leave a few links out of the chain. But Elizabeth Warren buys it completely. Watch this. We live in an America where there's a lot more concentration in certain industries. Look at the oil industry, look at uh, meat industry, look at groceries generally. That what's happened is these companies have said, you know, we'll pass along costs, but while we're at it and everyone's talking about rising costs, let's just add an extra big dollop of cost increases to expand our profits. If we're going to get lectured all the time, can't we at least get a lecture from someone with an IQ over 100 with some kind of track record of doing something useful over the course of her entire 70 years on the planet just for once? Can't we get an impressive person to shout at us? No, we can't. What's interesting is that greed, of course, is causing all of this. Greed that Putin decreed the companies adopt. But it's also true that fucks, trucks full of food are being turned away at the U.S.-Canada border. So meat can't get to processing plants. Why is this happening? Well, it's happening because of COVID vaccine mandates, which are still being enforced by the Biden administration. And they require unvaccinated drivers to quarantine for 14 days because COVID's so dangerous. And a lot of drivers can't do that. And by the way, if they did, the contents of their trucks would spoil. So you might think that might have something to do with the supply chain issues that are making it impossible for you to fill your grocery cart. We're not going to hear that in the media. You know why? Because like big meat and like big oil, and like Vladimir Putin himself, according to Joe Biden, the media aren't giving him a fair shake. A lot of major things we've done. But what we haven't done is we haven't been able to communicate it in a way that is uh, um, 
Make me say another way. Well, see, that's kind of perfect. Yeah, well, we haven't been able to communicate. But look how the press has changed. Mm -hmm. Look how the press has changed. It has changed. Oh, listen, it, I, it, I get it. I know you get. You overstand it. Yeah. You don't just understand it. You overstand it. <laughs> but here's the deal. One of the things is that it's very difficult now to have a, um, even with, with notable exceptions, even the really good reporters, they have to get the number of clicks on, on, the, on nightly news. Mm -hmm. So instead of asking a question, anyway, it just, everything gets, gets sensationalized in ways that, but I'm convinced we can get through this. We have to get through it. And one of the things, look. I'm going to take a break and then we'll talk a little bit more I if don't you don't mind. <laughs> I can't complete a sentence, but the reason I can't communicate is because the media aren't sympathetic enough. They're not really on my side. They haven't helped me at all. And you know why? Because they just want to get clicks on the nightly news, which is now some sort of website. <laughs> Look, we could go on, but the theme is really simple. Nothing is Joe Biden's fault. Not gas prices, not media prices. <laughs> Meat prices, not the media's coverage of inflation, none of it. You know whose fault it is? It's Vladimir Putin's fault. According to Sandy Cortez, actually, you can blame white supremacists too. And that may be exactly the same as Putin. That's the reason white supremacy, that we only have 12 years to live. Watch this. The climate crisis is a crisis born of injustice, and it is a crisis born of the pursuit of profit at any and all human and ecological cost. That's right. Which means that we must recognize in legislation that the trampling of indigenous rights is a cause of climate change. The, the trampling of racial justice is a cause of climate change because we are allowing people and we are allowing ourselves to make sure, to, we are allowing folks to deny ourselves human rights. So the descendant of conquistadors is once again lecturing you about racism. Okay, Sandy Cortez. It's easy to mock her. On the other hand, open your mind. Larry Summers just told us that January 6th caused inflation. He once ran Harvard. He's a very smart man, despite his repulsive table manners. So the idea that your racism is making the planet warmer isn't actually that far out as plausible. We can't say we're not scientists. The one thing we can say for sure at this point is that the people who screwed everything up are in no way responsible for what they did legally or morally. In fact, they're blameless. And we can tell you that with confidence because the one thing we know for sure is that Vladimir Putin did it. Shut up, traitor, he did. Jimmy Dore is the host of Jimmy's Dore Show. We believe he's a loyal American, not on Putin's team. He joins us tonight. Um, now, are you keeping a list of all the things Putin is doing? Uh, Russia's very powerful. They control a lot of things. Uh, they overthrew our government. They committed a coup on America. They control the gas prices, and Russia's responsible for our inflation. And let me just tell you, uh, last time I checked, Russia couldn't get their good vodka into Trader Joe's. So I don't think they're really <laughs> controlling everything like they say they are, okay? Uh, so the, the, the Democrats right now are in power. They have complete control of government. And like all politicians, they don't want to take the blame for anything. They want right. you to blame everybody and everything or anybody and anything for the pain that you're feeling right now, except blame them, the people with the power right now. And so that's why everything comes back to Putin, because Putin is a pro proxy for their Trump hate. Right. And you said Larry Summers blamed January 6th on inflation, which is an old uh, a Clinton advisor. So uh, what, what 
what they don't want us to realize is that we have a unipolar government, right? So yes. if you vote for uh, Joe Biden, it, it's you're voting for uh, Goldman Sachs. If you Mitch McConnell, the same thing. You're voting for our oligarchy, True. and they don't want you to know that. And as soon as people wake up that we've been being screwed by the same billionaires that control Joe Biden, that control the Republican Party, that's what scares them. They don't want us to. They don't want me on your show talking to your audience, telling them that people on the left we smell a rat, and we know that Joe Biden is completely controlled by the oligarchy and the corporations. And right now, the American people are paying the price. What are we paying the price for? Not for Putin's inflation, not for Putin's gas hike. This is Joe Biden's invasion. This is NATO's invasion. This is right. Joe Biden's policies. These are Joe Biden's policies that are wrecking the dollar, that are propping up the ruble to the, it's stronger than it's ever been, and they're blaming a foreign country. Imagine if Trump did that. They'd be making jokes about it every night on the nightly news. Of course, they're not. Not I mean, on the nightly talk shows. But of course, they're not. They're all coddling. You saw Jimmy Kimmel have to coddle that old man, the guy who probably got stuck in a couch before he left that place. This is who's... And you know Joe Biden's not making the decisions. We all know that he's mentally right. impaired. And we all know that Kamala Harris isn't making those decisions because she also can't speak in clear sentences. So who is really running the country? Well, whoever runs the Democratic Party, which is a handful of billionaires, those are the ones. So if you're paying a higher price... They did a controlled demolition of our economy with the COVID lockdowns. And That's nobody right. wants to take responsibility for that. COVID lockdowns, which Johns Hopkins University proved saved zero lives. They didn't make any impact on the death rate whatsoever, right? So that they don't want to take responsibility for that. They want you to blame your neighbor. They won't want you to be angry at the oligarchs or Fauci or Big Pharma or the media that controls you, that makes you think that essential medicines are poison. They want you to blame your neighbor. It's everybody is a Trumper or they're not. It's you're with us or against us. And that is a that's the only message they have left. And then they have censorship left because they have failed, Tucker. Why do you think it is that Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are the leaders in the House and Nancy in the Senate and Nancy is the leader in the because they're not leaders. Those people have negative charisma. I wouldn't ask Chuck Schumer directions to the freeway. Why are they the leaders? Because they're the ones who take the most money from the billionaire class that actually runs this country. They take the money from them and they, they disperse it to the other members of Congress so they vote for them as leader, not because they're leaders, but because they're the most corrupt. Man, is that true? Great, Jimmy Dore. Great to see you tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, there was a legitimately stunning upset in a special election last night in an entirely Hispanic, effectively congressional district in Texas. Republicans took control of that district for the first time since 1870. What happened and why? Fascinating. Plus, an amazing and honestly shocking new report details how the FBI protected Hunter Biden after he committed a federal gun crime. Protected him. Did they do the same for you? That's straight. Okay, so lockdowns did save lives. Uh, now, I don't know what that particular John Hopkins study says, but that seems to be the general uh, academic consensus on the lockdowns. It just makes sense with something that's highly contagious and deadly, taking an average number of years off someone's life of 16 for, for each fatality, according to one academic study. Yeah, the lockdowns saved lives, and the states that locked out earlier, generally speaking, seem to have, have done better in many ways, and then their economy got back on track faster. So I'm sure there are contrary points of view, contrary studies. That's my reading of the 
academic literature on lockdowns and the economy and, and saving lives, but I'm sure they're, they're good, solid arguments against what I just said. Now, as for this widespread idea that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are all controlled by the oligarchs, guys, they're all controlled by the billionaire class. Notice they never name which billionaire, right? So there, there are plenty of billionaires in fossil fuels. Are they controlling Joe Biden? Are the billionaires in fossil fuels, are they controlling Joe Biden? Because it sure doesn't seem like it, right? Investments in fossil fuels have cratered since 2014. Absolutely cratered because the growing consensus among uh, banking institutions is that we don't lend to fossil fuel companies. And so government regulation is increasingly unfriendly, particularly under, under Joe Biden. But still, there are oil billionaires. And, and are they the ones controlling Joe Biden? Which billionaires are supposedly controlling Joe Biden? Now, there are billionaires who are right wing and there are billionaires who are left wing. It's not like all billionaires are on board with the same agenda. There are two billionaires who have donated to VDARE. Uh, immigration restrictionist VDARE supporting billionaires. Are they controlling Joe Biden? Are they controlling Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi? I don't think so. So Elon Musk is a billionaire. Peter Thiel is a billionaire. Right? Are these the billionaires who are controlling Joe Biden? So it's just so sloppy to say that, oh, these politicians are being controlled by billionaires. If you really believe that, then point it out. Which billionaires? Because billionaires are not all alike. There are straight billionaires. There are gay billionaires. There are solid citizen billionaires. And there are billionaires like Ron Burkle, who like to play around. Billionaires are all over the map, socially, culturally, religiously, politically. Right, this notion that there's just this billionaire class, which is just all on board with the Great Reset. They have some kind of coherent agenda, and they're just pulling the strings, and the politicians are just marionettes, just uh, having their, their strings pulled uh, by the billionaires and the oligarchs is, is really lazy thinking. Instead of doing the hard work of trying to figure out how the world really works, you just throw it off and say, oh, the billionaire class is running things. It's just the, the oligarchs who are running things. So in 2016, was it the billionaires and the oligarchs who decided we need Donald Trump as president? Because it sure didn't seem that way. In the 2016 election, it sure seemed like the billionaires and the elite class and almost all of America's institutions were pretty solidly lined up against Donald Trump, just as they were against George W. Bush, just as they were against Ronald Reagan, just as they were against Richard Nixon, and just as they were against Dwight Eisenhower. And yet all these men took office. So I, I'm not, not a huge fan of this lazy thinking. You got to show that Texas congressional lady she's hot, says Glib Bedley. Glib, I don't objectify women, bro. Like, I don't see race. I don't see color, and I don't see hotness. I just see God's kids. So that's why I have graduated from sexual objectification, and I now believe in organic, free-range chicks. Like I don't believe that we need to keep women down on the farm anymore. I don't believe that we need to limit women's consciousness and give them false consciousness 
whether it's from capitalism or the, the, the media, academic, culture, industrial complex, all right? I believe in free-range checks. And yeah, I know that sounds controversial, but here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Organic free-range checks. I'm starting a ranch in Montana where we're going to do this. Well, for years and years and years, we've been told that wanting a border is racist. Only white supremacists want borders. Everyone else is an internationalist. Well, it turns out that's not true. It never was true, but the results are in it's completely untrue. Do you know who wants a border? Hispanic voters. In 2020, Donald Trump flipped Zapata County in Texas. That's 95% Hispanic. And last night, if you need more evidence in a special election, a Republican called Myra Flores flipped a district in South Texas that's 85% Hispanic. No Republican has represented that district since 1870. So you have to ask yourself, why are so many self-described Latino voters voting for white nationalists? It's very odd. Glenn Greenwald has noticed this trend. He's an independent journalist. His work is on Substack. We're happy to have him join us tonight. Hey, Glenn. Um, so how does this work exactly? It is kind of odd that the media narrative holds that the Republican Party is devoted to a project of white nationalism and white supremacy, and yet at the same time, large numbers of Latino Asian, Muslim, and black voters are either slowly or rapidly migrating to the Republican Party, which you would think would make people question whether that narrative could possibly be true, but you would be wrong. It's They're not questioning it. They're essentially attacking those people by saying they're too dumb and too primitive to understand their self-interest. The Democratic Party, and I just know this from personal experience traveling a lot, does seem like a party that's wholly dominated by and that caters exclusively to the instincts of 45-year-old, affluent, personally unhappy white women. That's just, that's the way it seems to me. So how is that the multiracial party exactly? The split between the reality and what elite media and uh, journalists and political people have been saying could not be wider. Under the Trump presidency, Trump was held up as this Hitler-like figure, one of the two or three most racist people who wanted to genocide all non-white people. He attracted more black and more Latino and, and more Asian voters than any Republican in decades. And Joe Biden won for one reason and one reason only, because affluent suburban white women voted Democrat after voting for Republicans for a long time. It's the exact opposite of what the media has been claiming. It's un and it's provable because we have the election result. It's just too unbelievable. Okay, looking at the chat, V who says, I identify as a billionaire. Way to go. Rustin says, going to cable news to hear a dialectic discussion. It's like going to a strip club to hear Shakespeare. Yeah, so... We have to make peace that uh, Tucker Carlson, to be as popular as he is, he, he can't really aim his show much above the 105 IQ level. Trans billionaires are the only real billionaires, says Clib Medley. Trump bought the oil at $30 a barrel for the reserve that uh, Biden just put on the market. Rustin says, all we need is more facts and logic to win while the left steamrolls us with impunity using whatever is expedient. Yeah, one of the things that I've learned, whoa, I, I got to I gotta disavow this. Whoa, what's, what's going on here? I, I, I'm shocked. 
for perspective, that is 10 years more than Biden's son received when he committed a federal gun felony. He lied on a federal gun form about his drug use in order to get a handgun. So we knew that. We've known it for a while. But the Washington Examiner just put some meat on these bones. He just uncovered Hunter Biden's text in the days after he bought that 38 revolver. And those texts reveal that in October of 2018, Hunter Biden acknowledged leaving that firearm in a car. The vehicle, according to his sister-in-law and then girlfriend, Hallie, was unlocked with the window down and she was worried the kids were going to get it. So she tried to get rid of the gun. She threw it in a trash can near a school. And when she did that, Hunter Biden melted down because the feds became involved. This is a direct quote. You now have me as an abusive pedophile with homicidal tendencies, Biden wrote to Hallie. And that's now in the hands of the FBI. Well, wait a second. Abusive pedophile? Tell us more. What does that mean exactly? We don't know. We'd like to know more. And then Hunter Biden berated his sister-in-law girlfriend for telling him his gun didn't belong in an unlocked car. Quote, what right do you effing have, he said. But it turns out Hunter Biden had no reason to worry at all because he's Joe Biden's son. So the FBI not only didn't pursue charges, they protected him. And in fact, it was federal agents of Secret Service. He was not entitled to Secret Service protection, by the way, at that time. You paid for it anyway. The Secret Service, on his behalf, on Joe Biden's behalf, went to the gun store, the very one where Hunter Biden had lied on the federal gun form committing a felony and tried to grab the paperwork so no one would know. The result of all of this? No one red flagged him. The crackhead accused of homicidal pedophilia tendencies? No. Instead, he was treated very gently by the media. Here's an example. Why did you have a gun? Well, I did, again, you know, the period of my life that um, was difficult. It was, um, but, you know, I, I don't know. According to the reporting, at one point, the Secret Service went looking for the record of sale. Do you I know anything about that? Nothing, no. But you know about the Secret Service being involved? No, I had no idea. I, I don't know whether the Secret Service were or wh why they would be, or I don't think that that's true. Oh, but you did know because it's in your text. You're lying. The federal government covered up your crimes. So to recap, you're not allowed to protect your family anymore, but the president's son can do whatever he wants with firearms. So can the Ukrainians. By the way, guns are not for you. They're only for Ukrainians. And the city of Miami just made that explicit. And we're quoting, in an effort to support Ukraine, the city of Miami will be hosting a gun buyback. Only Ukrainians get guns. <laughs> only Ukrainians, not you. The Ukrainians. So where does this leave the rest of us? Well, as long as selective enforcement of the law is the policy of the Biden administration, no American should feel obligated to follow Joe Biden's gun regulations. Because why would you? If the law is clearly illegitimate, it's not even being a... Well, well you, you obey the law, one, for the effect that it has on you, and two, so that you can stay out of trouble, right? If, if we start determining you know, which laws we're going to obey on the basis of whether or not we respect the administration that enacts them, uh, I, I don't think that's, that's a winning formula for going through life. So Joe Biden, uh, forget that, Tucker Carlson, he made a snide remark about Larry Summers' table manners. Was that anti-Semitic? I mean, has Tucker Carlson been going to the Orthodox synagogues that, that I go to that aren't exactly like Emily Post etiquette style. I mean, did he did he look in a, on a kiddish club? Did did he, did he pay attention to the riot over the the cookies at, at kiddish after services on Shabbos morning?
Okay, so I don't think there's a Hebrew word for etiquette, right? Who's the... Hmm. Just reminds me that, that I'm opening up these charm schools for Hasidim, and we're going to even extend this perhaps to other needy Jews. So charm schools, we're going to have education in table manners, education in interacting with strangers, interacting with outgroups, interacting with, with the government. This is going to be amazing. You really want to get down on the ground floor of this investment. You're going to, you're going to double your money in no time. Charm schools for Hasidim and other needy Jews. Okay, I made some stunning notes for my stunning replies to Tucker Carlson's show, and I really wish I could read what I wrote. Doggone it. So, so here are my notes for the show. Maybe, maybe you can read my notes. I, I hope I haven't said anything bad in there. Okay. So my, my heuristic, uh, my approach to commenting on the world is to imagine myself in other people's position and recognizing that everyone's responding to incentives. So that's why I don't uh, view people as satanic or devil worshippers or, or evil. I just think people with different makeups, both psychological and genetic, are responding to incentives. So that's, that's how I understand the world. I don't view any, any one social class or race or religion as just being inevitably superior. I, I just look at people doing the best they can. Uh, nobody gets up in the morning thinking, how can I do evil? Oh, so yeah, it, here's an analogy that I wrote down. Finally figured out my writing. If I, if I walked into a room and 10 winners wanted to talk to me, like I'd have my pick of the winners, right? to whom I would lavish my attention and possibly even my affection. But if I'm a poor man and I walk in and nobody wants to talk to me, I can't be nearly as selective. All right, so I, that's what I assume it's like to be rich. You just have a lot more choices in life and you respond to incentives. So men who have more opportunities with hot young women, right, they're more likely to fool around than men who don't simply because they have more opportunities. Most men stay faithfully married because it'd be way too much hassle to stray and because they don't have that many opportunities with attractive young women, right? So it boils down to the situations that you find yourself in. Man, I've got notes here. My favorite thing about journalists is that they are not ready. Oh, yes, here's my point. When I've been interviewed over a hundred times and I, I prefer journalists who are not emotionally needy. And when I've interviewed people, I've interviewed over a thousand people. I've interviewed thousands of people in my life. Uh, I try not to come across as, as emotionally needy. So the worst thing is when people, people develop all these intense feelings about what they think you're going to do. So in general, there's nothing people enjoy more than talking about themselves, and there's nothing they hate more than seeing their words end up in, in print. So a certain distance. I, I really appreciate that when I interview people, when they're not you know, overly needy, when they're not too emotionally involved, when they recognize that I have a job to do and it's not to serve as their PR agent. So, for example, Jenna Jameson, right? 
I wrote many critical things about Jenna Jameson, and she was always really courteous, really professional, very upstanding and and decent to me because she said, look, I recognize that you have a job to do. I was writing a blog and, and with, with a widely read popular blog comes a lot of responsibility, but she recognized that I was trying to cover the news in her genre, in her industry, and I was just doing the best I can to cover the news. And sometimes that meant you know, some, some negative words about Jenna Jameson, but she didn't cut me off. So I appreciate people who have that kind of distance rather than people who are like super emotionally needy and they, they react to every single thing that you, know, you say. They're trying to you know, desperately manipulate you. I have one friend who's a movie and TV producer and he says that it would give him headaches at casting calls. I'd absolutely give him headaches at casting calls because he was dealing with the, the neediness of these various actors. So Rustin says, all we need is more facts and logic to win while the left steamrolls us with impunity using whatever is expedient. Well, guess what? The, the left thinks the same way. Do you think the left is happy with the Biden presidency? Do you think the left is happy with the past 18 months of the Democrats controlling the presidency, the Senate, and the House of Representatives? So the left has pretty much the mirror image of you. So the, the left is despairing that they're not able to enact their agenda. The Biden administration has been able to legislate you know, almost nothing significant. Right. So th this idea that uh, the left is just steamrolling us left and right. Yeah, the left has won most of the culture war battles, but at least we have low marginal tax rates, guys. At least our capital gains rates are quite minimal and and you know our, our death taxes are not so high yeah we've lost every single culture war right but let's try to look on the bright side at least we've kept our marginal tax rates down what happened to the good old casting calls well casting directors are ever increasingly female precisely because of all the men who are hitting on on women, God forbid. Porn is too scripted nowadays. Am I right, Luke, or what? I have not kept up with uh, the porn industry. Glib Medley says I'm disappointed that Karen Porn has yet to emerge. But I've been watching this very funny British TV show about five kids at, at university. It's called Fresh Meat. And uh, one of the kids, the, the, the bad girl, her... Her mother comes to visit, and don't worry, she's the she's the cool mom. So, um, geology. Hmm. I just started pharmacology. Oh, study drugs. <laughs> oh mm -hmm. yeah, but, but nothing illegal. <laughs> it's all right, Joe. One thing you'll learn about me: I fucking hate all that mum shit. All right, great. Ah, feminist. Yeah, my mom was a feminist in the seventies. And that is why, in the 90s, we told feminism to go fuck itself. So, this is the TV show Fresh Meat. So, this I've is got season this three. Barbie duck, so, don't, don't eat today. It's going to be massive. Episode yeah. five. Oh, yeah, so I'm so, and so sorry. This nerdy guy, he, he reads a book on sexual objectification and why it's wrong, and so he turns into a feminist. His roommate is kind of hot. And she's objecting to objectification. I object to your objections to objectification. Can't these 
as I'm sure you can appreciate for someone like me, um, depictions, representations, if you like, are all that's available to me in terms of intimacy. Those of us who exist on a mainly solitary basis, you know, we have to often resort to the only means available. A bit lost, are you talking about wanking off to porn? No. But if I was... Porn is very exploitative, Howard. Yes, I know that, Morpheus, thanks to you and your red pill. So that's why I looked up <laughs> organic porn. You know, the free-range stuff, the good stuff. Okay. Where the women have Red's space porn. to roam around. Well, it turns out it doesn't exist. No. So I would very much like to go back and take the blue pill, please. Take I'm the not blue sure pill. Candice, I don't want to wank off to art. I've done it before, it just isn't the same. If that desperate, we could always just have sex. That was a feminist joke. Organic free-range porn where the girls can, can run free. So uh, the dirty guy is given a T-shirt reading "Radical Feminist." Just uh, Howard, hey, over here. Oh, Share hi. support. Look, can you believe this guy reading a magazine full of sexually objectifying images out in the open like he doesn't give a shit? I know that individual, and it's probable he doesn't care. Yeah. Well, as feminist Howard, it's our job to make him care. I am not. Come on. Where do you go? I'm going to enlighten him. <clears throat> Excuse me. I object to your objectification. Hello. The imagery of your magazine is something I experience as degrading to my humanity. Because they're better looking than you. Howard, would you like to help me explain? Women are human beings with brains. Did you guys realize that? Women are human beings with brains. Seriously, when I started going to uh, sex addiction and love addiction meetings and, and the like, and Al-Anon meetings and adult children of alcoholics meetings, I realized that women have problems too. I, I guess I had this kind of mythologized perspective on women. Anyway, it was seriously, it was really helpful for me to hear what life is like for women, the problems that they have, how they, they suffer and they struggle, that they're insecure uh, they may be slutted out over the weekend and they really regret it or, you know, they came down with an, an STD and they really regretted it and you know, they, they blew some guy in a car and now they really regret it. And, uh, look, we, we all make mistakes, but I, I seriously did grow in understanding the humanity of women from 12-step programs. So when my sex and love addiction was, was running wild, I'm afraid that I often looked at women primarily for sexual objectification and for, for getting off and for seduction and for creating erotic scenarios in my head. 12-step uh, work, 12-step meetings, listening to women talk about their struggles with love relationships, with, with men, with sex, with dating. It, uh, it made women more real for me and it kind of helped me calm down a bit. Not just sexual objects for your gratification. Yeah, right. Even, uh, even these ones. Especially those ones. Especially those ones. So then she, she goes on the warpath to uh, to ban sexual sexual objectification magazine. See this <sighs> sexual objectification. I mean, how big a deal is it? It doesn't affect you, does it? No way. Well, not me. I mean, when I was at school, yeah, because um, men in white vans always beep at you when you're in your school uniform. Other than that, only when I'm walking home alone late at night 
or going past a building site, or wearing a short skirt, or on the beach. Sometimes in a club, maybe? Oh, and once I was in Florence and there was a strange man who put his hand on my ass and um, showed me his willy. And then when I got back to the hotel, I found jeers on my rucksack. But other than that, it's like, no big deal. Why? The red pill has a bitter pill to swallow. The red pill has right. a bitter pill Shift to swallow. Up. So this young woman writes a play and the only positive review com- comes uh, from, from a name she doesn't recognize. So she tracks the person down and it turns out that the one positive review of her play was written by a older male professor with whom she had been having an affair. And so she's a little bit disappointed. To track down the author of this stunning review, praising her amazing play, the, the only review with positive Can things I to say about her play. A cup of tea. No thanks. Trudy Miller loved your piece. I'm glad Trudy Miller loved it. I'm just not glad that Trudy Miller turned out to be Tony Shales. I found myself hoping that this young woman would live her life as courageously as she writes her plays. I meant that. I thought you saw into my soul. But you were just trying to persuade me to shag you again. Oh, don't be ridiculous. Obviously, you don't want to. <sighs> Do you? No! Okay, okay. I thought your play was very brave, that's all. It wasn't. It was terrible. I'm a terrible writer. Only your dialogue. Your prose is much better. You've never read any of my prose. So, is this where you live now? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Only during the week. He's living in a back. caravan. So here's a sentence you should never say, right? Never, ever <laughs> say to anyone the following confession. It's a very bad sentence to say. I think I know why I couldn't get it up with your mum. <laughs> I think I know why I couldn't get it up with your mum. Right, guys, do not ever say that sentence. Yeah, my, that's just, it's not a great sentence, you know? It wasn't just because it was morally wrong and betrayal of our friendship. It's because she wasn't Sam. And I miss Sam. What they're doing with human rights and the answer is even worse than we are. Europe is now less safe and less free than it's been in living memory. Eva Vlardingerbroek is a Dutch legal philosopher who's been chronicling this. She's sounding the alarm that things are happening in Europe that have not happened in a very, very long time. We had a remarkable conversation with her with her new brand, a brand new episode of Tucker Carlson today. Here's a short piece of it. You can see even that the establishment goes after politicians who dissent from the left-wing globalist uh, rhetoric with legal means. And you can see that not just for politicians, but during COVID, for example, we've seen that being used against ordinary civilians. So they will have task force, even a military task force in the Netherlands that is completely just has this one job, and that is to crack down on free speech. And they'll say everything that goes against the government's narrative when it comes to COVID, for example, forms a danger for a society. Therefore, it's disinformation. We need to. Is this girl? She's a legal philosopher, guys. Stop objectifying her. Didn't you get the whole point of what I was saying earlier about the dangers of objectification? 
She's a legal scholar, right? Her looks aren't important. Take it down. So, and they'll use force to do that? Well, not wow. yet. Well, you've, you probably have wow. seen, you know, the, all the, the, pro wow. the demonstrations that we had where the police used force against, pro force against protesters that yeah. they've done for sure. But not yet so much when it comes to freedom of speech in the sense that they crack down on disinformation, but they haven't done that with wow. force yet. But well, they'll delete if posts. they have guns <laughs> and they're telling you to stop doing something, the threat is inherent. Wow. Yes. And we don't have guns because, like well, I said, we don't have a First Amendment, scholar. but we sure as hell don't have a Second Amendment. So it's not a free country is what you're saying. No, it is. I think it's an illusion. It's an illusion of a free country. If all the things that I find important for a free democratic nation are not real. So if you are going to arrest, as the state arrests dissidents, you don't have free speech. If you have politicians that are, first of all, Geert Wilders, for example, is protected 24-7 because his life is not sure, because he's always under threat of radical Islamists that are also being imported by these same elites. And you have the state that comes after him. And, and, and prosecutes him for the things that he says, I don't think that you can talk of a real free nation, no. She's not overstating it. In the UK, a man was just arrested for making fun of George Floyd on a private social media account, arrested. That episode is absolutely worth watching. Uh, rhetoric. Okay, so what's, what's her name? Eva, Eva Vladang, Eva Vladinj. Eva Vladinj, Eva, okay, Eva Vlad, oh, Eva Vladingerbrook. She is a Dutch politician, a Dutch opinion maker, and she's on Instagram. So let's see what she has to say here. Working on a treaty of which we will see the first draft on August 1st of this year which is called the World Health Organization Pandemic Treaty, which, as you said rightfully, um, will be a legally binding treaty for every single, pr practically every single nation on the earth. So once a new pandemic hits, and those are their words, not mine, uh, we will have a united <laughs> response to how to deal with the pandemic, meaning that there will be this organization that is not democratically elected, that we didn't vote for, we don't even know exactly who is in it or who we can hold accountable for the things that they will impose on us, is going to basically create laws that will decide how our respective nations are going to respond to a new crisis, a new pandemic. So this is huge news and it's very dangerous, but as just indeed, we're not hearing anything about it. No, and as you say, I don't know if you object to it. I don't know where you go to. What what polling station do you go to to vote out Dr. Tedros? There isn't one anywhere on the planet, and uh, and all it ensures is that the their disastrous performance during the last two years. I mean, basically, they've been in the pocket of China. That's why this is the first pandemic where two years have gone by and we don't have a reliable answer on where, where it came from or how it got out. Basically, the guys who are in the pocket from China are now going to be running pandemic policy for North America, Europe, uh, Australia and everywhere else. Exactly. We didn't vote for them, and you said it rightfully so. They are completely in the pocket of China. It was the World Health Organization that, first of all, praised China for their response to the pandemic, 
which we all know what the response is. We've seen actually the footage of how China is still responding to the pandemic. And we see people screaming and jumping out of buildings because of the draconic lockdowns that they're still having there. That was China's response. That's what the World Health Organization was praising. Um, the other thing is an interview that we've seen with an official from the World Health Organization that has responded very vaguely to whether Taiwan had had a good response to uh, the pandemic, because obviously Taiwan is not something that you want to talk about if you're in China's pockets. And what yeah. they've also done is they have very much so, uh, they've told China that they can do the research for the origin of the virus. Uh, so yeah, is China going to incriminate themselves? I don't think so. So the ties with China are very clear. Um, lockdowns will definitely probably be something that we can see in this treaty as one of the, well, one of the responses, of course, to the new pandemic. It's almost like the holy trinity of the world governments is a lockdown vaccine and surveillance app. And well, the EU being mm. a very big partner in this new treaty, they are actually the European Commission is a partner to draft this new treaty. Um, wants a digital ID, as we've talked about. So we can be sure that that's something that's going to be in there under the guise of data sharing. And then another interesting element to all of this is that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the largest donor to, financial donor to the World mm. Health Organization. So we see three major stakeholders here that I don't want ruling my life, but they will be doing exactly that and they will have the legal powers to do it without us being able to say, hey, we don't want this, we're gonna vote you out because we can't vote them out. So we can't hold them accountable for the things that they will impose on us. And I don't think it's- Okay, so who do you love, right? That's what it boils down to. Who do you love? So in 27, she's 25 years of age. She's dating Thierry Baudet, who is in 2017, she was dating Thierry Henry Philippe Baudet, a Dutch politician author. From 2019 to 2020, she was in a relationship with French politician Julien Louis Rochadet. And then in 20, late 2021, she began dating PragerU podcaster Will Witt after being introduced by Dennis Prager. The couple got engaged in March 2022. That could have been me if I'd only managed to sustain that relationship with Dennis Prager. I'm sure he would have been thrilled to introduce me to Eva Vladenbrook. Can you believe that she is engaged? Uh, muzzle tov. Muzzle tov to Will Witt and this uh, Dutch legal scholar, Muzzle tov. I think it's going to be any fun. No, and I have no idea why Bill Gates gets a bigger say than millions and millions of people in supposedly free societies. I don't know why Bill Gates is suddenly the big expert on viruses. When he ran Microsoft, he couldn't keep viruses out of Windows 98, but he's now the biggest genius on the planet when it comes to keeping viruses out of real life. This is a terrible thing. You know, one thing I've learned, uh, Ava, from the last couple of years is that I like borders because borders give you choices. Um, that if, you, if you're an American, for example, and you don't like the crazy lockdown policy in California, you can go to Florida. 
uh, e even within the EU, even within Scandinavia, if you, if you don't like what they're doing in Denmark, you can go to Sweden, where they had a completely different approach. Uh, and I would think that in the, the uh, next pan, and that's even true between England and Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, which were all much heavier handed lockdowns. I would love it mm. if the next time one of these things is unleashed by China, we actually had more choices in the approach to dealing with it, rather than a one-size-fits-all thing for the entire planet. Right. And this is why we are so afraid and why a lot of conservatives always warn for globalism, why they warn for the idea of world governance, of a world government. That's not a conspiracy theory anymore when there is literally a world organization that is going to be able to draft laws in the moment of a crisis, in the moment of a pandemic. I don't know what could be more opposed, diametrically opposed to the idea of democracy than not having a people vote for representatives within their nation state that are there to 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 put forward their interests. Now we are giving that sovereignty away to an organization that is going to do that on a worldwide scale. You can't have both. It's either democracy or a world government or a world organization dealing with these things for us. You can't have them all. Yeah, that's very well. That's very well put, Ava. I wonder, do you think when you look at all these trends, the digital identity, uh, the WHO globalization of public health, when you put them all together, do you think we are actually moving into a post-democratic era? We're already moving into it right now. Basically, we've already seen what it's like during COVID. We didn't have anything to say. It was all by executive rule. And in that case, it was from our governments. But now we're moving towards something that is so big that it's almost impossible to, to end this, it seems. Once you start looking into this, as we just said, the EU is in it. China is in it. Bill uh, and Melinda Gates are in it. So you have big capital. You have the European Union. You have... China, it is such a, a big play and there are so many stakeholders that all seem to have the same interest, join up and decide these things for us. It's completely impossible by now to deny that there is something happening here that is going to definitely take away power from the people and that it's going to go towards a, a surveillance society on a global scale. I can't, I really can't say that it's, it's anything else. This is what it is. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And thank you for bringing up Bill Gates, because Bill Gates is one voter. He's no more important than you or anybody else. And it's outrageous that just because he got rich peddling that crappy product, that lousy computer uh, system he makes, that he should suddenly be the public health commissar for the planet. Thank you very much, Ava. We're going to stay on top of this story, like all the conspiracy theories of the last couple. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, he is. It turns wait, out wait, wait. to be completely real. Joe. Okay, let's get some more of her uh, videos here. Hi, guys. I don't know if you Hi. can hear me well. Uh, I was just live on, on War Room for Steve Bannon. And uh, while we were doing the interview, I just had gotten back from the, from the protest. I'll, I'll wait for a second till some of you guys like tune in. Um, otherwise, I'm gonna have to repeat myself. <sighs> Ooh, I'm still a little shaky, to be fair. Okay, 
Okay, I'll just start telling you the story. So I'm in Brussels right now. I was at the at the protest at the Freedom Rally, the march, and uh, everything everything you know went very well. We started this morning. It was um, yeah, it was like 11, 11 in the morning, 11 a.m. when we when we arrived to the march, when we arrived at the, at the place, and it was packed with people. Like the biggest protest that I've ever been to for sure. Okay, does she talk about anything aside from lockdowns? You're not going to see anywhere else. That's easy because there are a lot of stories you're not going to see anywhere else. Everything's been blacked out and censored. Here's a big one. In just the past two weeks, massive protests against vax mandates have broken out all over the world in a lot of different places. Huge demonstrations. Here's a sampling. <sighs> As big as any BLM protest, but no coverage whatsoever. Why is that? Eva Vlardingerbroek is a Dutch legal philosopher. She joins us tonight from overseas. Eva, thanks so much for coming on. So you're getting the sense in the United States that everyone's in favor of vax mandates, and then you see coverage like that, and you realize there is a global movement against it. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. There is a massive movement going on in Europe right now of tons of people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people actually, who are very much aware of what's at stake here. These people are aware of the fact that our constitutional rights are being set aside without an end date and that we're heading towards a new system, a tyrannical... Okay, doesn't she have anything else to say other than... Oh, here she is with Dennis Prager. With a woman I met at this conference, a young woman... A, a lawyer and one of the leading conservatives, if not the leading, in my opinion, in Holland. And I, I need to tell you folks, and I don't want to embarrass her. Funny, had stayed uh, on good times with Dennis Prager. with her brains, is great courage, which is the rarest of the traits. She's not vaccinated. There's no reason on earth a young person should get vaccinated. None. Oh, it is God a crime forbid. against God humanity forbid. that we have forced young God people forbid. to get no, vaccinated. Get vaccinated, guys. I want to stay on YouTube. More young people by far in the United States Follow have died science. of drug overdose than of COVID. Follow the but science. that doesn't register on people's concern scale. Eva Floodingbrook, and she has a Twitter account at Eva Flar, V. L-A-A-R. Is that correct, Eva? Totally correct. Yes. Oh, good. And you, you should have an international following, in my opinion. I know you're going to be doing, uh, actually, a podcast uh, with on PragerU this week. Is that correct? Uh, on the 27th, I will, be, uh, I will be on with Will together for a full hour. Well, that's wonderful. The, the more the more exposure you get, the better it is for the world. I, I, I'm telling you, I hear you tell me everything is closed in Holland. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, she means everything. 
only grocery stores for food. So what I'm curious, what if you are are walking around or you drive somewhere and walk with your family or or with friends? Is is that okay? Yes. So in Holland that's okay. But as you just mentioned, um, in another country in Europe, in Austria, that's not okay if you're not vaccinated. Um, the young man that you were just speaking about who's been on your show a couple of weeks ago, I saw him this weekend as well in, uh, in Austria. And we were there to protest against the mandatory vaccination that has already been announced there. They're going to enforce it from the 1st of February onwards. And now in Austria, there is a lockdown for the unvaccinated. So I was actually out there on the street being illegal just by existing. Okay, so I, I don't agree with what she's saying, but she is certainly very pretty. And What does it mean it's mandatory? Wait, stop, will, will, stop, will you stop. be fine? Shut up, Dennis. I, I can't take it. I can't take it anymore. Okay, here, here she is. Wake up now. Oh, no. It's more. Woke terror in universities. I can talk about cancel culture and about the fact that the left-wing media is mean to me. But why would I talk about wokeness in university if soon I am not legally allowed to enter university? Why would I talk about protecting our national heritage if soon I can't legally enter a museum? Why would I talk about purchasing... Okay, all she's talking about is opposition to vaccine mandates. Stop it. Stop talking. Stop, woman. Stop talking. I'm looking for makeup tips on here. There don't seem to be any videos. Oh, wait. Here she is at the beach. Oh, this is nice. Oh, video has no sound. Okay, perfect. Okay, so she's a legal philosopher with a master's degree. And apparently she did her master's degree in sex work. Uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not kidding. I'm not I'm not making that up. According to not that she participated, God forbid, God forbid, but according to according to Wikipedia, she was born September third, nineteen ninety six. And she studied law in Munich after graduating with a bachelor's degree. So law in Europe and Australia is an undergrad degree. She then began studying for a master's degree in philosophy of law. And she graduated her master's with honors with an essay on the contractualization of sex in the Me Too era. Contractualization of sex in the Me Too era. So where's it? Okay, let's, let's translate this into English. Okay, keep the government out of your bedroom, dangers of a new morality law. So Eva Vladimirbrook submits, everything indicates we shouldn't even want to open the door to this Orwellian nightmare. So the Minister of Justice and Security in Holland wrote a letter to the House of Representatives in which he wrote the Dutch sex legislation urgently needed modernization. And... So to prove rape, it must be proved that the sexual act took place under duress or the threat of violence, right? This is the coercive model, entails a high burden of proof. Too high, it says the meat to us. And human rights organizations 
such as Amnesty International, believe that it's far too difficult to convict someone for rape. And there's a whole interview with her. It's precisely after such an attack that idealism comes up in me. So she she was apparently attacked. Okay, according to Amnesty International, the low chance of a criminal conviction for rape is proof that we still live in a rape culture. Sweden was one of the first European member states to amend its morality legislation with an explicit reference to the Me Too movement. Okay, so they're, they're trying to define rape down. She was loudly acclaimed, but also hit hard after her speech at Forum for Democracy. But philosophy of law, Eva Vladenbrook, does not drop out. I do not let fool rule me. Okay. Whew. Just, just need to take a break and kind of cool down. I get so excited talking about philosophy of law that that I almost lost my, my equilibrium. Anyway, I want to go back to, to the intellectual content on which this show is so well known. So Joe Biden is saying that oil companies are too greedy, and that's the reason we have high gas prices. Well, if oil company greed is motivating gas prices, why don't oil companies charge $1,000 a gallon? And everybody wants as much of what they want as possible while paying as little price as possible. So in the dating market, men to land a woman give the impression of the traits that women are looking for in a man long-term commitment you know financial stability that they'll take care of her and so the man you know, looks after the woman initially when he's trying to get something he pays for everything he, he protects and provides for her to give her th that feeling that he'll be there for her and women to try to attract male attention and to, to capture men, they give men what they most want often very early on in a date. So there are plenty of women who will go to bed with a guy on a first date to kind of lock him down. So men are trying to get as much as they can from women. Women are trying to get as much as they can from men. So in places where there's a much higher ratio of men than women, women can be very selective and they wait a lot longer to have sex. In a place where there are more women than men, women are less selective they have sex a lot quicker and they're willing to accommodate you know, more variations in the sexual experience to try to secure a man. So we're all greedy. We all react to incentives. So if the publishers of the New York Times could get away with charging $100 per newspaper, they would. Right? So high gas prices aren't because oil company executives are particularly greedy. We're all greedy. We all want as much as we, we possibly can. If I got offered, you know, someone wanted to, to book an Alexander Technique lesson at this time slot, right? I would take that $100, I would teach that Alexander Technique lesson, and I'd blow off this show. So we, we all respond to incentives. Now, even, even Eva responds to incentives. Just imagine Dennis Prager set her up with Will Witt. And now they're engaged to be married. And and may the best man win. And congratulations, Will and Ava. You you have my respect and my admiration and, and my support in, in a completely non-creepy way. Okay, let's get back to more beauty on the internet.
You ready? You ready to get rejuvenated? I've been looking recently for rejuvenation because I felt a sense of crisis. And when I step back... So Kenneth Brown seems to be going through a tough time. I, I presume that uh, he was invested in crypto and has taken an absolute bath because of the crypto downturn. So you'll notice many of the quirks of the e-personality coming out here. So when people go online, they tend to be much more morbid. They they lack the, the, the boundaries that people tend to have much more readily in real life where you're looking at people face to face. So go online, start sharing. You'll be a lot more morbid. You, you share a lot more dark stuff than you would face to face. So it sounds like uh, Ken Brown, aka Deep Left Jokal, is going through a tough time. Now, this guy's sounding more and more like Millennial Woes, and he has a lot in common with Millennial Woes. Like, neither of them seem to have a mean bone in their body, right? I, I don't see Millennial Woes or Ken Brown being nasty. I don't see them getting into feuds. I don't see them abusing their power to take advantage of people. Well, maybe maybe they, maybe uh, Millennial was a little pesty, but... Overall, neither of them strike me as nasty, vicious, you know, feud-loving blokes. Back and I examine and I analyze the sense of crisis. It comes from it comes from certain illusions. It's not grounded in reality. So the idea that I'm going to lose all of my money, or the idea that I'm going to hit a certain threshold where essentially I'll be paralyzed in my body, I'll be paralyzed in my body watching the world go on without me. So he wouldn't be speaking this way if he was face-to-face, -face, right? He probably wouldn't be speaking this way if he had people in his life that he could share with. So I've certainly used the internet to give vent to my darkest fears. So I, I empathize with what he's going through, and he's doing this video to calm himself down. Uh, he's doing this video to recenter himself. He's doing this video to feel more comfortable in his body. And that will be terrifying. These are, you know, ridiculous things. But I think there's a list of these sort of fantasies, these nightmares, these waking nightmares, these crises that are at the root of every, of every um, crisis. You know, the belief is like, well, I'm going to lose some money, but that's connected to the concept of losing all your money. So I think in every small little upset, there's always a kind of apocalyptic chrysalis or kernel or seed. But I so I remember on J-Swipe and on Tinder, girls would often ask me, where are your investments? And I'd say, my investments are in my family. My investments are in my community. My investments are in my friends. But when people ask me, how are you hedging against inflation? I used to say, oh, I invest in community. Seriously, that's the best way to survive tough times. Community, friends. It's even better than U.S. Treasuries. The U.S. Treasuries help too. But I also think out of every crisis, every crisis is, is concerning a sense of loss, like losing all your money, the opposite would be having lots of money because money represents power, so we want power. Or instead of losing all your money, if you if you were to watch the world roll by, the opposite would be to be involved in the world, to be really active and really change the world, which is another form of power. Right, so if you're afraid you're going broke, if you're afraid that life is passing you by, if you're afraid that you're on the outside looking in, then the answer is to take some, some form of action.
right, to, to step up. I mean, he really needs to go to the Center for Healthy Sex and listen to some of these Mirror of Intimacy webinars with Alex Kalahakis. All of its possibilities. So intention, um, first of all, you have to have your attention on what it is you're seeking. So very different vibe here between the Ken Brown video and the Alex Kalahakis video. So Alex Kalahakis videos is just jam-packed with useful insights, with, with, with tips, with, with inspiration, with, with common sense, with wisdom, with, with the learning that uh, she has had. And set your intention for that. And then you have to take action. And those three things will move you towards what it is you say you want. So I want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments, to please uh, type them into the chat box and I'll do my best to answer them for you. So what precedes sexuality, of course, and love is courtship. And courtship also requires action. And um, courtship is a funny word because it sounds dated or old or even ancient in some ways. And courtship changes, you know, from um, era to era. What used to be courtship, let's say, in Elizabethan times where... So watching a lot of Millennial Woes videos and watching a lot of Cam Brown videos, they're like watching a car, car wreck. And then watching Alex Katahakis videos is watching something inspiring and useful and good for you. Two people were matched together and often there was a chaperone in the simplest of conversations. It was considered immodest to be in a room alone with someone um, of the opposite sex. And if you were same sex attracted, you certainly had to do that in secret. Um, courtship today can look like, um, you know, pinging someone. When are you going to catch a live Luke and ask her some questions? I don't really have any questions for her. I mean, I think she's amazing, but it's not like I'm walking around with all these questions. You know, how should I, how should I really you know, conduct things? I don't have any burning questions. So I talk to a lot of people who are confused and they're burning questions and they're just so passive. Oh, I don't know how to do step nine or just don't know how to work on my goals pages or I don't know how to do step four or I'm confused about column three in the step four inventory. I don't know what steps I need to take to take, get a better night's sleep or, you know, I've got this, this pain in my butt and I don't know what exercises to do. I'm a man who takes action. When I got those problems, I take action. I reach out to people. I Google. I research. I watch videos by Alex Katahakis. One on a dating site um, and then texting with them and then maybe having a Zoom call and eventually. Oh, no, mummy question. Well, I don't really have questions about mother hunger mommy hunger because I know the things that I need to do to address my mother hunger and I'm doing those things. So I don't have any burning questions of which I'm aware of how to address my mother hunger. A coffee date um, to see if you're compatible enough to actually go on a, what we would consider more of a quote, real date or traditional date. But this all requires action regardless of what your standard of courtship is. And Oftentimes, one person is complaining. So I know a lot of people, that their idea of taking action in this department is to get on Tinder or to get on J-Swipe. And those are easy things to do and probably better than nothing, but insufficient. But the other person isn't initiating the courtship fast enough, like he or she or they don't call um, or something along those lines. And then once people get into relationship, there can be complaints about who's initiating sex and why one person initiates and the other doesn't. Uh, but I want to really impress upon everyone and all of us that sex is not only initiated genitally, 
um, that this is an old, old construct of sex and sexuality, that sex can be transmitted through a gaze, a simple look across the room, the tone of voice, because it's the intention that moves things into action, not the final. This is a great point. That goes stampeding after the clitoris. Why do you always want to go stampeding after the clitoris? What's wrong with a good kiss on the lips? What's wrong with a gaze across the room? What's wrong with talking to her about her favorite podcast? What's wrong with going to synagogue together? What's wrong with going for a nice walk on the street? Why all this stampeding to the clitoris, guys? ...action itself. There are all these small measures and steps that have to be taken in order to get us into our preferred state or preferred goal. So think about any large endeavor. Sex is a smaller endeavor, but a larger endeavor like a career path or going to college um, or deciding to get a higher education. You don't just decide you're going to go and get a bachelor. So this is a woman who got a PhD and then she founded this great place, Center for Healthy Sex. She's helped hundreds of people. She's published three books. She's a highly accomplished, highly intelligent woman who's made many major contributions to a field. Her approach is a sex addiction as affect dysregulation. And she worked damn hard and she's achieved great things. First degree. And then boom, you have one. You have to go through so many small steps from the application process. Just that has a hundred steps in it by itself. Um, and then the acceptance process and then the matriculation process. It just goes on and on and on before you get to the final. And uh, the chat says sex is for baby making. And what Robert George, that Christian philosopher at Princeton, apparently his main argument against gay marriage was that every sexual act should have the possibility of procreation. That's not the Jewish perspective. Right? It, it doesn't have to be a possibility of procreation for sex to be holy. It just simply needs to be between a man and a woman who are wedded to each other. Graduation. So keep in mind that these small things that we do on a day in and day out basis are the ways that we are engaging in courtship with our partners. The glance, the look, the smile, the funny things we say, the pet names we have for each other. Um, so it's not just about a genital grab and then you're having sex all of a sudden. Um, and in addition to sex, engaging your partner in any kind of planned activity is important. It doesn't matter whether it's a date, like you're actually maybe going to the theater again, um, or you're going for a hike in the woods or a walk on the beach. But those actions demonstrate your intention. Your intention. Okay, so just notice the difference between this useful, learned, commonsensical, inspiring, just awesome, awesome webinar here with Alex Katahakis and this. So. When we look at the world, it's easy to feel uncertain. It's easy to feel like anything can happen at any time and there's no... Hey, instead of saying when we look at the world, why don't you talk about when I look at the world, right? We all look at the world very differently because we're different people. So why don't you start by coming to terms with your own fallibility, which is what you often do, which is why you're a pretty decent bloke, right? Your, your, your vulnerability... It, uh, it shines through, bro. Shines through. You're one of uh, George H.W. Bush's thousand points of light. Rhyme or reason, and there's no um, control. And this leads to a sense of apathy, depression, and coping. People try to derive a sense of power in very superficial ways, like video games, virtual reality, fantasy. Why don't talk about what you do to derive a sense of power, right? Deriving a sense of power is very important to me. So I get up early in the morning. I get up 4.30, 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m., 
very rarely do I wait until 6 a.m. to get up. I get up early. I get a start to my day early. I get in a cold shower. I get a sense of power from having accomplished the most difficult part of my day first thing. I, I, I drink my protein drink, take, take my, my beef organs, and then I get started on some painful and demanding exercises, which are good for me, which are helping to reduce my piriformis syndrome. I get outside, go for a walk, may go to shore, may go to a 12-step meeting. I have uh, responsibilities, people that I, I meet with in the mornings. Right? I've got all these meritorious actions that I take, and through connecting with other people, connecting with meetings, connecting with a synagogue, connecting with a minion, connecting with a, a Torah class, I get energy and a sense of power. I get inspiration, right? Attending a meeting, I get power. Attending a class, I get power. Get inspiration from a YouTube video or from a rabbi or from a 12-step speaker or from a really good audio book. I get inspiration and power, right? Knowing that I've got uh, great 12-step materials that I can turn to or books that I can turn to for inspiration and guidance, another source of power. Maintaining and developing friendships, another source of power. Having the opportunity to share my thoughts with the world, another sense of power. Right, Having these things that I need to do to, to make money, another sense of power. Having money in the bank, another sense of power. Investing my money in U.S. treasuries right, that, that pay better than inflation rate, another sense of power. So there are all these things that I do to develop my sense of power and uh, Seeing, seeing people on the street, uh, kibitzing with, with uh, people in the community, going to the, the dog park, uh, working out, going, going to a gym, connecting with people. All these provide a sense of power. Books, online discourse on Telegram, Twitter, at J-O-K-K-U-L-L, you know, so we can retreat into things that may have some utility, but also um, I see the ways in which people retreat into ideologies where they have some kind of group where they can feel important they can be a, a big fish so I, I feel like cam brown's talking to himself here i think it'd be more powerful if he went with the first person in a small pond and feel important when you know they're kind of hiding from the rest of the world so there is a there is a certainty about death that you know when you right, so he's going he's going morbid he's going dark like he's struggling he Sounds like he's lost a lot of money on cyber currencies. He's going through a difficult time. And so he's going to a dark places that he wouldn't likely go to if he was interacting with more people face to face. Die, you're going to lose all of your authority and your agency. And your body will turn to dust. And your mind, in a certain sense, must degrade because, you know, it's, it's not very often that I speak with somebody and they say, yeah, you know, I, I just died. <laughs> like, babies don't come out of the womb. Like, oh, man, I just got hit by a car. Now I'm, I'm a baby? This is so Okay, so there are certain very common perils to the e-personality. People tend to be less considered, less less measured. They, they make quicker decisions. They tend to be much more impulsive online. Uh, people tend to have a much uh, more inflated sense of their own importance and wisdom when they're online. They are less likely to take into account the effect of their words and actions on other people when they're online performing for a camera, and they're much more likely to go to a morbid and dark place than if they were having a face-to-face -face interaction. So weird, you know that doesn't happen. 
Um, or if it does, it happens so rarely that you have to be kind of suspicious about it. Um, huh. I wonder where I am. Um, I think I might go back here pretty soon. So, so you know, if um, I'm trying to think about this. So if there's there's like this loss of the mind when you die. A lot of people will say that when you die, your mind is maintained and you go into heaven or hell or Abraham's bosom or purgatory, your mind is maintained. So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, and Seventh-day Adventists are obsessed with what happens after you die. And so I was really happy to convert to Orthodox Judaism, which pays almost no attention to what happens after you die. So precisely because Jews and Judaism don't focus on the next life, they take this life more seriously. They take this life more passionately. It's not unknown, for example, at a Protestant funeral, the only people crying are Jews, because Jews take life and death very seriously. They, they take what happens in this world very seriously, and they don't spend much time or energy thinking about what happens after death. So religious Jews have the expectation that God rewards and punishes. But I love the Jewish priority on this life rather than on the next life. But in some senses, your mind must change. It's confronting a different reality. You're no longer on the earth. You know, for materialists, this is a pretty straightforward concept. For religious people, it's hard for them to understand that, like, your mind cannot be maintained in its current form. And your body cannot be maintained in its current form. Now, if you believe in reincarnation, then, then people have similar minds and similar bodies. But there are variations, and there's this loss of control. So, yeah, maybe if he can abstract it enough, he can get a sense of comfort from and a distraction from his own suffering. And that you are interested that you want, that you want your partner to want you also. There's a mutuality in this kind of courtship uh, that is that requires work and discipline in order to move towards what it is you want. So it's through our intention and the rich actions that we take every single day, the gratitude that we have for our partners, uh, that others know that we love them. And this would be true for your children also, or your perhaps aging parents. Um, that these are not one and done propositions, that these are day in and day out actions. And relationships require a lot of intentionality, a lot of intention. Um, we've talked about, uh, I meant to say attention. We've talked a lot about the metaphor of a garden. Um, you can't just plant a garden and walk away from it. You have to tend to it. You have to weed it and water it and check on it and uh, fertilize it and um, make sure the dead leaves are taken off. You've got to spend a lot of time cultivating and shaping that garden, just the way we have to cultivate and shape our loves. Um, we have to let people know that we're attracted to them, that they matter to us, that we care about them by showing up. Um, and there is the adage that we should all live by that actions speak louder than words. And that's a really important statement. Um, the way that we forgive someone if they've hurt us is by watching their actions. When people change, that's when we can forgive them. Um, so these actions are essential in order for us to be able to um, have trust and safety and a sense of belonging and caring for the people around us. Okay, just a fantastic uh, webinar here by Alex Katahakis on actions. And another man of action is Tucker Carlson. So we remember very well being called a traitor to the country by people like Chuck Schumer, who obviously don't care about the country, uh, for predicting that maybe the sanctions on Russia would be counterproductive. Now, Bloomberg is reporting that, quote, some Biden officials are privately expressing concern that rather than dissuade the Kremlin as intended, American sanctions have instead exacerbated inflation, worsened food insecurity, and punished ordinary Russians more than Putin or his allies. Bloomberg noted that, quote, the collateral damage from the sanctions has been wider than expected. You think? 
It wasn't hard to predict. We predicted it months ago. It was obvious even then. It was lunatic. It was pushed by Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff, who runs the country. We said that out loud. We were denounced as traitors for it. So here was the original argument. In order to fight tyranny, the United States must embrace collective punishment, hurt the children to bring justice. These are our values, because Vladimir Putin is a moral monster. Now, these are not traditional Western concepts of justice, but Joe Biden wholeheartedly endorses them, and so does a dominant bipartisan coalition in the United States Congress. The question is, is this a wise course? Now, we can't say. Far be it for us to suggest thinking through world-changing policies in any way before enacting them. Pausing to reflect, we have learned, is disloyal. Adult moral calculations are treason. Thinking about your own country is a crime. The immediate goal, again, the bipartisan goal, is to turn Russia into a pariah state. Now, again, the question isn't whether Vladimir Putin deserves that. It's more than a moral question. The question is, how will that work out for us and for the world? American citizens have a right to ask that question. Oh, but you don't have a right. You should be arrested. You're committing treason, say people who actually don't like America at all. So the question is, they got it wrong again. Will they ever admit it? Will they ever pay the price for getting something huge wrong? Victor Davis Hanson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. We're honored to have him join us again tonight. Professor, thanks so much for coming on. So this all seemed kind of predictable. It's not a defense of Putin to say this was stupid. It was stupid. Now they're admitting it's stupid. Will anyone ever be punished for this? Yeah, it's an age-old rule, Tucker, of sanctions against autocratic governments that are, have impoverished populations. I mean, there's a paradox because the populations don't have a say, so they, they can't right. really, you know, they can't change policy unless they have a coup. And they're accustomed to a much lower standard of living. So if, if it's a big country like Russia that affects gas or something, we feel $7 a gallon gas or in California here, or lack of baby formula, a lot more than the Russians feel a lot worse punishment. These are people who lost 20 million in World War II. So there's a paradox. And the solution was always in these Russian-speaking areas that are contested to deter him not to go further and then to have a plebiscite and see if they want to be with Putin or Ukraine. And how you get there is to resist his aggression. But the only way the Ukrainians are going to win very quickly is to do things that are unthinkable to a nuclear power. And that would be give them shore to ship weapons, to sink the Black Fleet, as people have talked about, or take out more Russian generals or conduct raids in Russia. That, that's really harebrained. And that's the type of preemptive offensive defense that would maybe give them a chance, but in itself would be crazy. And yet the more this goes on, this Verdun-like attrition, there's going to be people thinking of that. And so it's better to just get people together and say, this is a tragedy. And let's look at these people that speak a majority Russia in these things. And maybe we can have a plebiscite and sanctions can be ended if people will agree. And it might not work. It probably won't work. But I don't want to see us fight uh, to the last Ukrainian to get every single Russian out of Ukraine where the majority on the border is speaking Russian. And that's not to excuse uh, Vladimir Putin, but we've no. got some really crazy people saying crazy things about a very ill dictator who's got his finger on 6,000 nuclear weapons aimed at the West. So, or not, they literally accuse you of betraying the country. What the hell? We've got too much debt. The only way out is inflation. There's no getting out of it. 
In the world of TV, you must entertain. I went through a really rough childhood. If you believe in censorship, you are definitely not the good guy. Were you ever afraid playing? Probably should have been. Now you don't have to wait for tonight. Watch Tucker Carlson today with new episodes streaming exclusively on Fox Nation. So on Twitter today, Elon Musk, who's buying Twitter, posted that he'd voted Republican in Texas. He voted for Myra Flores. Tesla's now headquartered in the state. Here's what he wrote. I voted for Mayor Flores. First time I ever voted Republican. Massive red wave in 2022. And someone else on Twitter asked Musk who he's going to be supporting for president. His response, one word, DeSantis. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida was asked about this today, and here was his response. Elon Musk. So what I would say, um, you know, I'm focused on 2022, uh, but with Elon Musk, what I would say is, you know, I welcome support from African-Americans. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. We're out of time. Unfortunately, before we go, a public service announcement. Tony Fauci has COVID despite getting like 27 vaccine boosts. Okay. Uh, come on now. Come on now. Let's let's see where Kevin Brown, Kenneth Brown is going guy, But you don't have the authority over you. You don't get to choose where you go. Um, the material says when you die, basically you're an annihilated and you don't have any agency over your own annihilation. Um, you know, in a soul believer's perspective, then your mind is altered and your body is altered in some way. I think there are certain um, concepts in Judaism about reanimation of the body, where you get your same body back and you're just existing in your body forever. Um, I don't even think that's true about bodies here on Earth. I mean, we can observe the way that which bodies grow. And the body... So Judaism is probably the most body-focused major religion. Right? The body really matters in Judaism. You wrap tefillin around your body. You wear a prayer shawl around your body. When you observe the, the mitzvahs of setting foot in a sukkah, you set foot in, a, in this garden booth that you create every, every fall. So Judaism is probably the most this life-centered religion and the most body-centered religion. So it's kind of the opposite of romantic religion. So Christianity embodies romantic religion. It's about individual salvation to the next world. Judaism keeps its focus on this world, and it says that what you do with your body matters, including what you eat. Is a tool of life. You know, if, you, if I didn't need to eat, what, what need, if I didn't have material concerns, like, you know, they say in this perfect state, you know, the body will be eternal. Well, what if I stop eating? Could I die? It's like, no, the body's eternal. And it's like, well, if the body's eternal, then what need is there for the body? Because the body is a, is a machine for struggle against the elements. The body is something that exists for the purpose of acquiring calories and reproducing. And if those two functions are no longer needed, then there's no need for a body. Why would you want, why are you? Really? That's, that's all the body is for, for consuming calories and, and procreation. The body's for doing the will of God. The body is for dance. The body is for love and light and connecting with other people. There are ways to connect with people aside from sex, bro. Attached to a body. You know, I want a body so that I can eat and have kids. <laughs> Those are the two functions of the body. You know, and athletics are a uh, kind of a mating ritual we enjoy. So you just kind of get the sense that uh, pleasure pleasure for, for Ken Brown revolves around his sexual fantasies and eating food. Because of that root desire for reproduction, which is good. You know, a lot of people say that, and it's like a cynical thing. I think it's a good thing. But what need would we have for a body if we were strictly, if we were materially eternal? So I'm skeptical of that position. So if we, if we accept that skepticism and we say that, you know, when you die, there's this loss of agency, that is scary. And then the question becomes, well, you know, if there's a threshold after which I pass, like I'm just not in control. Like my fate is up to some kind of a higher power or rules of the game that I don't understand, or maybe they're lined out, but I don't have control over them. You know, it's like in Monopoly 
when you do not pass go, do not collect $200, it's like you don't control the rules. You can't just do whatever you want and avoid the consequences of that. So there's some, there's either an arbitrary universe in which you just randomly assign some new reality or there's an... Okay, Kenneth Brown making some videos to try to assuage his anxiety. So if thinking about the, the conflicts that we, we sometimes have on this show and thinking about Jefferson Starship and if only you believe like I believe, if only you believe in miracles, if only you believe like I believe, baby, I might have to move heaven and earth to prove it to you. So we're making love. You feel the power and I feel the power and there's nothing really we can't do. You know we could. You know we could if we wanted to. We could exist on the stars. It was so easy. All we got to do is get a little faith in you. I've been to so many places. I've seen some things. Yes, I have. I know that love is the answer. Brave position. Yes, it is. Keeps holding this world together. Oh, yeah. Ain't nothing better. And all the answers to our prayers. Hell is the same everywhere. Nothing ever breaks up the heart. Only your tears give you away. If only you believe like I believe, we'd get by. Bye-bye.